I'm John Strum, and this is Real Talk MS. It's June 15th, and we have a lot to talk about. Since about 50% of the people living with MS will, at some point, experience clinical depression, mental health as it relates to multiple sclerosis needs to be destigmatized, studied more rigorously, and discussed more often. And I'm not talking about those times when you might feel sad. Left unchecked, MS-related depression can lead to tragic consequences. The statistics tell us that people living with MS are twice as likely to attempt suicide than the general population. And we shouldn't limit the conversation about mental health and MS to just depression. Given the unpredictable nature of MS, it's not difficult to understand how anxiety can further complicate a person's well-being and quality of life. The very good news here is that anxiety and depression can both be treated. Returning to the podcast to talk about managing the mood-related symptoms of MS is Dr. Anthony Feinstein. Dr. Feinstein is a professor of psychiatry at the University of Toronto, and his expertise is in the neuropsychiatry of multiple sclerosis. Dr. Feinstein has actually researched behavioral disorders in people living with MS for 26 years, And he also maintains a busy clinical practice in which over 80% of the patients are people living with MS. But before we get to my conversation with Dr. Anthony Feinstein, there are a few other things that you should know about. If you're an observer of the world around us, I think it's become clear, especially over the past few years, that beliefs are more important than facts. Just to toss out one current example, there are large numbers of people who believe that the COVID-19 vaccines are dangerous, that they will alter your DNA or cause you to become infertile or somehow or other pose a threat to your health and well-being. And they hold these beliefs about the COVID-19 vaccines without one shred of evidence, not a single fact in support of their beliefs. But those beliefs are so strong that the believers choose to put themselves, their loved ones, and their communities at risk by choosing not to be vaccinated. So, what does this have to do with multiple sclerosis? Well, as it turns out, a lot. Because researchers in Israel have published results of a study that show that someone's beliefs about the usefulness and safety of their MS disease-modifying therapy can determine whether they stay on their disease-modifying therapy. Now, the facts about disease-modifying therapies have been borne out in multiple research studies. Disease-modifying therapies delay progression. Or to flip that statement, disease-modifying therapies prolong a better quality of life. That's a pretty straightforward, evidence-based statement of fact. So, it would follow that someone diagnosed with MS would want to maintain the very best quality of life possible, and they would get on a DMT and adhere to that treatment. 
Well, the research team analyzed the adherence and persistence to DMTs by studying 186 people with MS who were all on a disease-modifying therapy at the beginning of the study. Now, adherence refers to following a treatment plan and taking the prescribed medication as scheduled. And persistence was defined in the study as staying on the same disease-modifying therapy for the duration of the study. Now, at the start of the study, at the six-month mark, and at the 12-month mark, study participants were asked to complete a series of questionnaires about their medication beliefs, their perception of their illness, their perception of their overall health, and their emotional state. The research team also relied on medication claims to help them assess treatment adherence and persistence. Well, the study showed that about 70% of the study participants adhered to their disease-modifying therapies after 6 months and after 12 months. When it came to persistence, by the 12-month mark, a third of the study participants had switched their medications. Of those who switched DMTs, 15 study participants cited disease worsening. 14 made the change as part of their pregnancy planning. Seven switched as a result of abnormal labs coming back, and 30 study participants cited issues related to tolerating the medication. Now, at both the six-month and 12-month marks, it was shown that the study participants who were non-adherent often believed that their prescribed disease-modifying therapy was over-treatment that could, in fact, be harmful to them. Treatment persistence was also shown to be influenced by concerns about the medication itself, the anxiety level, age, and gender of the participant. And each of these variables were shown to be significantly predictive of persistence. Now, this was a relatively small study, and it only tracked these issues of treatment adherence and persistence for a year. But the conclusion that adherence and persistence are predicted by medication beliefs among people with MS is worth taking note of, because the really good news here is that beliefs, unlike facts, are modifiable. And that really underscores the importance of informing yourself and becoming a full partner with your neurologist in your MS treatment. You do that by turning to credible sources of reliable information. That way, you're basing your treatment decisions on information that's grounded in fact instead of relying on someone's opinion masquerading as fact. Now, if you'd like to review the details of the Israeli study, you'll find a link in today's show notes. Living with MS often means living with multiple symptoms. It's common for people living with MS to experience impairments in both mobility and cognition. Now, each of these two symptoms can be debilitating, and neither is particularly well-managed by medication. Research has shown that exercise rehabilitation can be an effective approach to managing these two symptoms. Some research even points out that a single exercise rehabilitation session can improve both mobility and cognition. But being able to safely participate in exercise rehabilitation can be challenging for people with MS who are living with substantial disability. 
and adaptive exercise rehabilitation, like bodyweight-supported treadmill training and robot-assisted gait training, hasn't produced convincing results. But the results of a pilot study at Kessler Foundation may offer a new, accessible pathway to exercise rehabilitation for people who are living with MS with substantial disability. I had the opportunity to talk about this study with a key member of the research team, Dr. Brian Sandroff. In a moment, Dr. Sandroff joins us to explain what this study is all about and why the outcome of the study may be good news. A team of MS experts at Kessler Foundation has completed a pilot study of 10 participants with substantial MS-related neurological disability using a robotic exoskeleton to facilitate exercise rehabilitation. Now, I know there are a few words there that need some defining, and rather than me doing all the explaining here, I'm being joined by Dr. Brian Sandroff, the director of the Exercise Neurorehabilitation Research Laboratory at Kessler Foundation and a member of this research team. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Sandroff. Thanks, John. Please call me Brian. Fair enough. So before we get into the study itself, can you tell us what a robotic exoskeleton is? Yeah, it sounds like a pretty futuristic term, doesn't it? Um, A robotic exoskeleton is essentially a device that is robotic that someone can step in. Like it's like bionic legs with bionic arms, and it's kind of situated like a backpack. And what a person does is while they're kind of in this backpack with some leg straps and arm straps is they walk over ground on the floor somewhere. And the robot in this backpack helps to move participants' arms and their legs in such a way where their walking is more, in quotation marks, normal. And this is generally for someone who has problems walking. Um, Now, these robotic exoskeletons have other uses, like, uh, actually, I think their original use was for military purposes um, to create kind of an easier time for soldiers. And also, they have some manufacturing purposes to help Workers lift extraordinarily heavy things, but in uh, more recent days, it's starting to have a rehabilitative purpose where people who have problems walking or even aren't able to walk can walk over ground using this technology. As you're explaining this, I was thinking that balance can often be challenging for someone living with MS. So does a robotic exoskeleton offset balance issues? So it does partially. So it doesn't correct poor balance where if someone is uh, to the point of almost falling, the robot catches them. It doesn't really work that way. But if someone is walking and their weight falls a little bit too far on the outside of their feet where they may become unsteady, the robot can correct for that and have someone walk a little bit more efficiently. Well, as I mentioned a moment ago, your study looked at the impact of robotic exoskeleton-assisted exercise rehabilitation among people with substantial MS-related neurological disability and compared that treatment to traditional gait training. Can you tell us how the study was conducted? So the idea of the study uh, that really informed its design 
was that there are a host of benefits uh, of exercise training in people with MS, whether it's physical benefits, cognitive benefits, fatigue-related benefits, mental health benefits, uh, physical fitness benefits. But the benefits are generally for people with mild to moderate MS, and there aren't really great solutions for people with severe MS. So um, my colleague, Dr. Andreas, had primarily been doing this type of research with robotic exoskeletons in other populations with mobility disability, like people with incomplete spinal cord injury or people with stroke. And we got together and thought up, well, maybe we can use this exoskeleton to get people who have severe MS to exercise at an intensity that's sufficient enough to elicit the benefits that we know about in people with mild to moderate MS. So what we did is we performed a randomized controlled trial where participants who had major mobility disability came into our lab and they did some outcome assessments at baseline. Then they were randomly assigned to either um, four weeks of training with this robotic exoskeleton where they would walk around the hallways of Kessler Foundation two days a week for four weeks or conventional gait training, which is the standard of care for improving walking ability in people with MS that's typically done in clinical rehabilitation. Um, and that conventional gait training took place at the same frequency and duration as the robotic group. Then after the four-week period, they came back to our lab and did the same outcome assessments, which included measures of mobility, measures of cognitive performance, and underwent an MRI to see if the changes in mobility and cognition uh, were reflected in changes in brain connectivity. And sure enough, they were, which is incredibly exciting for us. Well, that's what I was going to ask next. Tell us what you learned from, from the study. So what we learned is that uh, even though it wasn't a small sample of people with MS, people who might not be able to accrue the benefits of typical exercise who have MS might be able to uh, experience similar benefits using this new technology for exercise. And not only was this evident for functional outcomes like the ability to walk a little bit better and the ability to think a little bit more clearly and uh, more quickly, but it was uh, revealed that those changes were associated with changes in how efficient people's brains were. So we kind of had this nice little picture where robotic exoskeleton uh, assisted exercise may have improved brain functioning, which might explain improvements in mobility and cognition. This is really exciting because as you're explaining it, I'm thinking it, it not only is a pilot study that showed that this could be a viable path for treatment compared to traditional gait training, but it becomes a treatment option for people who mostly could not take advantage of gait training, even if it were available to them because of their level of, of, of disability at that point. Am I getting that right? Uh, sort of. So these individuals who, because we wanted to recruit people with a specific range of mobility disability for this study. Um, and the people who we recruited for the study were able to do conventional gait training. But we're talking about structured aerobic exercise training, where, say, walking on a treadmill at high intensities, that might not be, some, not be something that someone who, let's say, uses a cane with MS might be able to do safely. So they may be able to do cycling, but their balance might not be well enough to where 
sitting on a cycle unsupported is a safe and easy thing to do. So robotic exoskeletons might allow people who you know, aren't easily able to do intense exercise, it might allow them to be able to do that walking exercise behavior in a safe manner. But it's also super intense where it's not like someone is using the robot and the robot is doing everything for them. Not the case. These people with MS are working really hard in the robot. It's an intense activity. Now that the results of this pilot study have been published, what do you envision as the next steps? So the next step in the short term is to develop a larger trial amongst uh, many people with MS in this kind of range of mobility and cognitive disability as well to see if our results are more generalizable. Um, We also are interested in seeing what the durability and the sustainability of the effects are, meaning that we want to see after someone does robotic exoskeleton training, um, what happens if they stop doing training and then we assess them six months later to see if, you know, these physical, mental and brain changes um, persist over time. Then the other thing is we are really curious about, well, how much is enough? So only four weeks is, is from an exercise perspective, is very, very short. Um, and we saw some pretty substantial changes in just four weeks. So what happens if we uh, have people exercise for eight weeks or 12 weeks? Or what happens if we have people exercise for two weeks? And maybe we can improve the lives of people with MS who, in a pretty short time span. And that would be just incredible. Incredible is a good word for this. Dr. Brian Sandroff, thank you for all that you do to improve the quality of life for people living with MS today and perhaps well into the future. And thanks for talking with me. Absolutely. Thank you, John, for having me and hope you have a great day. When we talk about relapsing remitting MS, we're talking about a disease course that's characterized by periods of symptom worsening, followed by a restoration of more normal function. And over a period of about 20 years, the majority of people with relapsing remitting MS see their diagnosis change to more severe secondary progressive MS. And then there are those people who are diagnosed with primary progressive MS, people who experience steady neurodegeneration from the onset of their first MS symptoms. In progressive MS, neurodegenerative processes steadily multiply leading to ongoing and irreversible disability. And being able to predict the likelihood of someone developing progressive MS in the future might allow their initial treatment to include more aggressive, high-efficacy disease-modifying therapies. So being able to predict the likelihood of progressive MS can potentially lead to truly life-changing outcomes for people living with progressive MS. That's why researchers are focused on identifying a biomarker that predicts progression. And an international research team may have discovered one. The team observed that in the mouse model of MS, a common sugar that's part of a regular diet, it's called N-acetylglucosamine, activated the cells that produce myelin and repair damaged myelin. Based upon this observation, the researchers became curious about the levels of N-acetylglucosamine in the bloodstream of people living with MS. 
And so they analyzed blood samples collected from people with MS and found that people with relapsing remitting MS had slightly lower levels of this simple sugar, but people with progressive MS had significantly lower levels of this same simple sugar. When the study was repeated with a completely different group of study participants, it yielded the same outcome. And the outcome of both of these studies was supported by additional imaging studies, leading the research team to conclude that low levels of N-acetylglucosamine, which can be easily measured, were associated with clinical disability and multiple measures of neurodegeneration. Now, as this discovery is tested in additional trials, it opens a door to a method for identifying at a very early stage which MS patients are at a higher risk of developing more severe progressive MS. So those patients can be treated earlier and more aggressively. And as they say on late night cable TV, wait, there's more. Because this simple amino sugar and acetylglucosamine has been shown to reduce neurodegeneration, there's also the potential of finding a way to incorporate N-acetylglucosamine in a disease-modifying therapy that would promote myelin repair, reversing the disability caused by demyelination. This is pretty exciting news, and while there's lots more work to be done here, I'll be sure to keep you updated as that work moves forward. And if you'd like to review the details of this study, you'll find a link in today's show notes. Living with MS means living with disease-modifying therapies, medications to manage symptoms like spasticity, and a very conscious or sometimes subconscious focus on minimizing any sort of physical disability. Too often, mood-related symptoms of MS are overlooked. And the irony is that 50% of the people living with MS will at some point be diagnosed with clinical depression. Depression can color your whole world. It affects every aspect of your quality of life and can literally keep you from even getting out of bed in the morning. The good news is that depression is treatable. And joining me in a moment to talk about depression and its sometime partner in crime, anxiety, is my guest, Dr. Anthony Feinstein. Today, we're talking about managing anxiety and depression in MS. Since about half of the people living with MS will at some point experience clinical depression, this is a topic that needs to be destigmatized, studied, treated, and certainly talked about more often. Returning as my guest is a friend of the podcast, Dr. Anthony Feinstein. Dr. Feinstein is a professor of psychiatry at the University of Toronto, and his expertise is in the neuropsychiatry of multiple sclerosis. Dr. Feinstein has actually researched behavioral disorders in people living with MS for 26 years. He also maintains a busy clinical practice in which over 80% of the patients are people living with MS. Dr. Feinstein's studies entail detailed neuropsychological testing, both structural and functional brain imaging, and quantification of mood symptoms. More recently, Dr. Feinstein has begun a series of studies looking at how cannabis might affect cognition and brain imaging in people with MS. Welcome back to the podcast, Dr. Feinstein. Thank you, John. Pleasure to be here. I sometimes hear people describe depression as feeling sad. 
Well, given the reality that depression is something that can keep someone from engaging in almost every aspect of their lives, I think there's probably a more accurate definition than simply feeling sad. How do you define depression? Yeah, I mean, you know, sadness is a normal human emotion. Everybody goes through periods of sadness. But when it becomes clinically significant, we're talking about your predominant emotion being sadness. In other words, sadness basically defines much of your time. It could also be irritability, but sadness is the core feature of depression. So these are individuals who day in and day out report feeling sad. When you look at the syndrome of major depression as defined by the American Psychiatric Association, it's basically a mix of symptoms, sadness being obviously the most important, irritability. They actually say that sadness needs to be present as your predominant emotion for more than two weeks. So, that, you know, consistent, enduring sadness together with changes in sleep, appetite, concentration, thoughts, behaviors, thoughts can go negative, feelings of guilt, worthlessness, hopelessness, I'm a burden, behaviors, social withdrawal, you know, people can start feeling suicidal, they may attempt suicide, they can be impairments with concentration. So you see there's a whole syndrome, a collection of symptoms that define what we know as major depression. Do we know why we see higher rates of depression among people living with MS compared to the general population or compared to people with other chronic illnesses? It's an intriguing question that. I think there are probably many reasons for it. Um, you know, MS is a disease that affects young, middle-aged people, so you're getting this potential source of disability early in your life, say, relative to other degenerative diseases like stroke or Parkinson's, where the onset is later. You've got the uncertainty linked to multiple sclerosis. You never know what's around the corner. You know, will there be another relapse? Very hard to predict these kind of things. So uncertainty is a very uncomfortable emotion to live with, and that can be a major stress. And then, you know, you may have the brain changes of multiple sclerosis itself causing depression. We know that MS is a brain disease. The brain changes can cause weakness or loss of sensation or changes in vision, well, why can't they cause a change in mood? Depression, we know, is a brain problem as well. And so in theory, your depression may be linked to where particular lesions are in your brain and how this has disturbed the brain function of that particular brain region. So there are a combination of many different factors that could explain why rates of depression are high in this disorder. One of the challenges presented by depression is that when someone's living with significant depression, they can be demotivated to even ask for help. Are there signs or signals that a family member, family caregiver might be able to pick up that would let them know this person may be dealing with depression? Yeah, I mean, you touched on one of those, which is, you know, demotivation, lack of motivation, lack of drive. The depressed individual doesn't have this get up and go in the drive. Um, you may see, you know, social withdrawal, the person looks sad, they're increasingly irritable. You become aware of the individual not sleeping. And you have a very typical sleep picture that can emerge in someone with depression is that you, know, you go to bed and fall asleep okay, but you wake up at about 4 a.m. Early morning waking, which is so typical of someone with depression. And so, you know, um, if you're living with someone, you're sleeping with someone, and you're aware that your partner's waking up in the early hours of the morning, you see some behavioral change, this could be a red flag. Or conversely, the individual may be sleeping excessively. You have hypersomnia, just too much sleep. You're just 
lack energy, you lack drive and motivation, you spend your days in bed. Um, you know, you start you know, neglecting your personal appearance. You don't pay as much attention to your personal hygiene, social withdrawal. You, know, you can get a number of signs that potentially suggest the emergence of depression. I always like to say that MS doesn't only affect individuals, it affects families. And we've seen that family caregivers aren't immune from depression. In fact, the added responsibilities of providing care, along with living with the same uncertainties of having a loved one diagnosed with an unpredictable progressive disease, can all add up to quite an emotional burden. And at that point, well, now you have two people that may need care, the, the person living with MS themselves and their caregiver. How can caregivers avoid this feeling of overwhelm at, before they reach that dangerous stage of burnout? I think it's such, so important. You know, caregivers have to look after their health. It's imperative that not just for their own quality of life, but you know, if they're going to provide good quality of care to someone with multiple sclerosis, you've got to be in a good state of health yourself, as you, as you alluded to. Um, it's also important that caregivers have time for themselves, are able to pursue the kinds of activities or interests that they want to pursue, um, you know, recognizing that there are going to be some constraints. But in essence, you need to try and build some kind of a life for yourself. I think it's important for caregivers to check in with a family doctor or indeed a therapist from time to time if you feel that things are changing, that you're feeling a bit more down or a bit more despondent or, you know, you're more irritable. It's, you know, it's, it's, it's a very simple thing to do, to have a quick mental screen to check on your own mental well-being. Uh, you need moments of respite. You know, if your burden of care is, is high, if the person that you're assisting is very disabled and you've got a very high burden of care, then you're going to need respite. You're going to need moments in which you can step back from this allow other people to take over your role so that you can go somewhere and re recoup, regenerate, recharge your batteries. And so there are multiple things that caregivers need to be aware of to you know, keep their eye open in terms of their own mental well-being. We've been talking about depression, and anxiety is something that often gets conversationally lumped together with depression, but they aren't really the same thing at all. How does anxiety differ from depression? And is anxiety also considered a symptom of MS? So um, you're right. Anxiety is not depression. Just to repeat, depression is a mood disorder. It's feeling sad or irritable. That's a predominant feature. Anxiety is a sense of worry, often attached to an external event. My finances, my relationship, my health, you tend to worry. You have a sense of anticipatory worry. You anticipate you know, further difficulties down the road. Anxiety can be divided up into discrete disorders like generalized anxiety disorder or panic disorder. And yes, I mean, anxiety for quite a long time was overlooked in people with multiple sclerosis. I think it was downplayed. Its importance wasn't recognized. You know, people would think, well, you know, you've got a nasty disease like multiple sclerosis. Of course, you're feeling a little bit anxious and just kind of assumed that it was normal to feel this way. But we now know it's not. You know, you do not have to feel anxious when you've got multiple sclerosis. And indeed, anxiety adds to the burden of the disease. It um, has a negative effect on quality of life. It can make life more complicated for the person with multiple sclerosis. Most importantly, you can see anxiety occurring together with depression. That's not unusual. We see this comorbid presence of depression plus anxiety. And indeed, there's a category within the 
APA classification of mental illness called a major depression or a major depressive disorder with anxious distress. So there's a recognition that anxiety can exist on its own. It can occur not uncommonly together with depression. When it does, it can make treating depression more complicated. It could have you know, negative implications for prognosis. So anxiety is now considered a very important aspect of someone's mental well-being. Not long ago, we reported on a study that showed that people living with MS were twice as likely to commit suicide compared to the general population. Some of my listeners that can remember back to 1990 might recall the name Dr. Jack Kevorkian. Dr. Kevorkian was a strong advocate for a patient's right to die by physician-assisted suicide. And because assisted suicide was not yet legal, Dr. Kevorkian even went to prison over his participation in physician-assisted suicide. Now, what people may not be as familiar with is that half of all of Dr. Kevorkian's assisted suicide patients or victims, depending on how you look at it, well, these were people who were living with progressive MS. Given the prevalence of depression, the risk of suicide ideation, should screening for mood, mental health counseling, or therapy be part of a comprehensive MS treatment plan? Oh, absolutely. I think you can't separate the physical from the emotional. They go together. And people who do that, it's a false dichotomy. I think, you know, given the high prevalence of depression, of anxiety, cognitive difficulties, people coming to an MS clinic should be screened for these conditions. These are major determinants of quality of life. You spoke about the risk of suicide, which we know is linked to depression and severity of depression. So every effort should be made to screen for and detect these conditions because, and here's the important add-on, depression and anxiety and emotional distress are treatable. These are conditions that can respond well to treatment. So if you don't screen, if you miss the diagnosis, you are doing the person with MS at grave disservice. You are missing a potentially treatable condition that is a major determinant of quality of life. I think that for some people who may be listening, they're thinking, you know, my moods ebb and flow all the time. And yes, sometimes I'm sad and sometimes I'm sad for a reasonable amount of time, more than a few days. How does someone know when it's time to talk with someone about their feelings of depression or anxiety? Well, you're right. I mean, sadness is a normal human emotion. Everybody goes through life feeling sad at some time. You know, sadness linked to bereavement. We feel sad when we have a romantic disappointment or we didn't do well in an exam or we never got a job. So sadness is part of the human condition. Nobody goes through life and never experiences periodic intermittent sadness. However, everything in my profession lies along a continuum, from mild to severe. And as depression increases in severity, it can start having a negative effect on how that person is functioning. So if you find that you're feeling sad more often than not, if sadness is your predominant emotion, if you feel that sadness is influencing your behavior, social withdrawal, or you don't want to mix with people at work, or you lack the motivation to get out of bed in the morning, your sleep pattern is disturbed, reach out for help. And I think you know, the advice that I'm giving you now will, you know, will never let you down. If in doubt, if you're in doubt, reach out for an assessment. That's all you need to do. It's a quick assessment. If you get a clean bill of health, great. But you know, 
if, the, you know, if something is picked up, if there's a problem that's picked up, then you will get the kind of treatment that can make a very significant difference to how you feel. Speaking of reaching out, this past year, the pandemic changed the way that healthcare can be delivered. How have you seen telehealth change the access and availability of mental health treatment? So the pandemic has transformed healthcare. Um, in my profession, which is mental health, you know, we do not have to have the person sitting in a room in front of us. Unlike a neurologist, we don't have to tap a knee or stick a pen into someone. We just have to talk to them. You know, we are dealing with abstractions, which are emotions and feelings and cognitions. So um, my clinical work since the lockdown back in April of last year, all my clinical work has been virtual. I have a very big clinical practice, but I have not seen a person face-to-face, unless I'm on call. If I'm in the emergency room and people come in, then of course I go and see people. But in terms of my outpatient practice, it's all virtual. And the same is true for all my colleagues. And so what we're seeing is that the pandemic has been a shot in the arm to, to telemedicine, to telehealth. And the interesting part is this. My patients, for the most part, find it more convenient. It's much easier to log on and talk to me the way we're talking now than to call a taxi and then drive through traffic and get to a hospital and struggle to find parking and pay an exorbitant amount to park in the hospital parking lot and then wait in a doctor's waiting room. You know, all the inconveniences of coming to hospital have been done away with by telehealth. From my perspective, it's also useful because, you know, I can log in to see a person at a set time. You know, if I'm waiting for someone in my office and a person is half an hour late, it throws out my entire day and can affect other people as well, etc. So there's a convenience factor to telehealth. Now, I do recognize that some people just miss seeing you in person. And I understand because I miss seeing people in person as well. But in a busy practice like mine, mental health practice, telemedicine is transformative. And my prediction is that when the pandemic lifts and people have the option of coming into the hospital or seeing someone as we're talking now, the overwhelming majority will choose telehealth. It's just much more convenient. And by the way, when you've got MS and you're struggling to walk down a long corridor, you know, or you can't find parking close to where the mental health unit is, you know, that's a major barrier to coming into hospital. Or when you organize the transport services that are coming, you know, that pick up disabled people and they run late, or they can't pick you up for three hours after your appointment ends and you have to sit around in a hospital waiting for them to come three hours later, you know, that's not great. Whereas when you can connect like this, you're on time, you get your appointment, and you still see the doc. Yep. People like it. Oh, they yep. certainly do. Uh, and and those situations that you just uh, named, I mean, those are real-world obstacles that, yeah. that keep people from making that appointment. And so I just think, I, I hope your prediction it turns out to be 100% accurate. Yeah. Uh, you know, John, it's a strange thing. You know, hospital designers often don't design hospitals in a user-friendly way. You know, you've got like miles of corridors. I, I think that's uh, something anyone who's spent more than two minutes in a hospital will readily agree with. You're absolutely right. Well, Dr. Anthony Feinstein, every time we talk, we, we, we talk about the important stuff, the life-changing stuff. And the good news is that when we talk, we talk about things that are treatable. Thank you for all you do to improve the well-being of people affected by MS. And thanks for talking with me today. Oh, my pleasure, John. It's always, always great to talk to you. Thank you. 
That's going to wrap up this episode of Real Talk MS. Real Talk MS is powered by the National MS Society. And you can share this episode of the podcast by letting your friends or family members know that all they have to do is point their web browser at realtalkms.com slash 198. You'll find that link in today's show notes, so you can copy and paste it right into your email or your text. And now I have a quick favor to ask. It would mean a lot to me if you'd leave a rating and review for Real Talk MS. Just point your web browser at realtalkms.com slash review, and you'll see links to the different online destinations that you can choose from to leave that rating and review. Now, those links will be different for each of you because they're based upon the software that you happen to use when you listen to podcasts, or you at least have that software installed on your phone, tablet, or desktop computer. For example, if you happen to be using an Android phone to listen to Real Talk MS, you won't see a link to leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts because you can't leave a review on Apple Podcasts with an Android phone. I hope that makes sense. It's just a little bit of technology that makes leaving a rating and review super easy. So I hope you'll take a moment to leave a rating and review for Real Talk MS, and you'll find a link to do that in today's show notes. I'm John Strum. Thanks for listening. Stay safe and make healthy choices. <laughs>